Hello and welcome to The Social Relapse, a podcast where we discuss some of the ways in which social media is changing how we think, talk and see ourselves. This is episode 7, Palestine in the Digital Age. It was recorded at the end of May, just a few days before the announcement of a ceasefire following 11 days of unrelenting aerial assault on occupied Palestine, which claimed the lives of 243 Palestinians. In this episode, we'll be discussing the importance of amplifying Palestinian voices and whether social media has been a help or a hindrance. Joining me are Laith and Salam, two Palestinian Londoners who know all too well that while it may have had sizable social media presence over the last two months, theirs is a cause that is more than a century old and is increasingly reliant on social media to raise awareness. My name is Laith. I am a Palestinian in London. Uh, I've worked in, as a doctor for a few years, uh, but have kind of pivoted to a more health policy, health justice focused career. So I'm currently uh, studying towards a master's. Uh, although, as with probably most Palestinians recently, that's uh, taken a backseat. And I think we've all um, taken a lot more activism and campaigning within within all of the spaces in, in which we um, study or work. Uh, so that's been kind of a heavy feature of my uh, recent activity. Yeah, my name is Salam, and I'm also a Palestinian Londoner, but um, props to my mum, she is Guyanese, but she's, she's got Palestinian blood in her, I'm very sure of that. Um, so yeah, I've been working as a photographer for the last three years, and um, I've actually been very grateful for the platform that I've created for myself because it's been an opportunity to share things that I've not necessarily been able to do so in the past so likely sort of using the industry that I'm in to sort of push the activism and, and start these conversations with people who maybe had never had exposure to the Palestinian cause before so yeah that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Great. Well, Life and Salam, it's lovely to have you on the episode. And the title of this episode is Palestine in the Digital Age, mainly because it feels mm. like, at least as an outsider looking in, that we are entering kind of a new era of recognition of the Palestinian struggle, but also kind of a global solidarity movement that is massively helped by social media. We saw that from trending hashtags that were highlighting kind of what's happening in Palestine and on the ground but also hashtags that called for action. So whether that was hashtag sanction Israel, hashtag free Palestine. Um, and these are all kind of movements that whether you agree with them or not, whether you consider them activism or slacktivism, they are something that is probably a feature of the way that our generation and generations to come will operate. So one of the first things that we're going to discuss is the amplification of the Palestinian voice and how that's happened through social media and kind of kind of notable speakers that maybe you you follow yourselves or, or people that you can kind of relate to. But before I get into that, I normally ask people on the podcast what their relationship is with social media. So like, do you find yourself using it a lot? But in the context of the episode, how has your usage been over the last week, like when you've been able to see everything going on? I usually use social media as my news source anyway. And that's mainly because I enjoy getting kind of unfiltered news straight to kind of yeah just straight from the people who are on the ground who may be experiencing the thing that I'm interested in and I would maybe usually kind of have an 80-20 split of kind of maybe 80% social media 20% um, other kind of various kind of news 
websites and things like that, but it probably increased even more over the recent period. And um, I guess we'll kind of cover this in more detail, but it's because it was a very fast moving situation. And the people who were on the ground were not only reporting what was going on, which was extremely important and really remarkable, just in and of itself as a set of events, but also because there was a very deliberate narrative that is that was being shared by the people who are on the ground. And, and I think that was one of the things that I see as a significant change in this movement more than previously in the cause. So yeah, very heavy social media use recently. Yeah, I would say mine has definitely increased in the last week, but also my need to detach from the information or to kind of take a step back has also increased as well, just because the rate at which you consume information is so intense and so high that, you know, it's, I'm in a place of privilege and I recognise that I can detach from that and sort of take a step back and be like, I'm absorbing too much, this is impacting how I'm feeling. But like yourself, I've also used social media as definitely my primary source of, of news and information. I don't necessarily rely on mainstream media anymore to tell an accurate story. I've, I've known that from a very young age that it's always skewed to favour the person who it, it shouldn't really. But I also do still indulge in sort of the New York Times article or what the BBC is saying, just to kind of compare and contrast and see the language that's used so that when I am engaging with people who maybe primarily use mainstream media as their source of information, I can pull that language apart and say, oh, actually, no, this is problematic because of X. Actually, it's not a conflict, it's colonialism or settler colonialism. Like you have to pick these things apart and you have to be conscious of what the mainstream media are saying because some people are not active on social media or are not because of censorship which we've seen a lot of in this movement as well but not everyone has access to the same information so actually it's important to see what the mainstream media are pushing so you can sort of break down that narrative which I think has been really important but yeah I think my usage in the last week has definitely or the last few weeks actually since sort of everything that was happening in Sheikh Jarrah and from then until now it's been I'm engaging and then I'm sort of like taking a step back but yeah I've been using it definitely as a tool to share information and, and sort of inform others as well so yeah it's been heavy usage my screen time is insane <laughs> I mean definitely I can relate I think it's been difficult to pull away hasn't it but at the same time it does I mean I've had a couple of sleepless nights constantly thinking about it, and I think only more so for for you both I guess touching back to what you've both recalled is this idea of kind of activism but also Salami mentioned having a platform and I think we'll start off with discussing the importance of having Palestinian voices. I think you've mentioned a lot about how media narratives aren't always accurate or are kind of designed to frame things in a way that already reveal their bias. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to social media we see a lot of young people, a lot of young activists in Palestine that are sharing kind of the on-the-ground reality that doesn't normally make you know the 10 o'clock news highlights. So personally how do each of you feel it's really important to have this time and this sharing of their voices and experiences? I think it's it's fundamental to the change that we are hoping for. I think for the first time in a long time the access to that information is it's the first time we've ever had sort of raw, real footage of things that have happened and not just footage, but also dialogue from people who are definitely worthy of being able to talk about what they what's happening there. And you have 
you know, an accurate representation of the truth. And I think it's been vital because, you know, Israeli propaganda has been incredibly successful in pushing a very, very false narrative. So to have people on the ground saying actually what it is and and not just vocalizing it, but also having those visual aids, which are heartbreaking and very difficult to see, but actually completely undeniable. So, you know, mainstream media will have, you know, a picture of what they would like the rest of the world to see. And it's a cropped image. It's never the full screen. So actually the amplification of these Palestinian voices on the ground is so integral to sharing the truth and also hopefully creating change. I think it's also completely vital. I mean, in addition to everything that you said, which I completely agree with, vital for any liberation movement, any justice movement to be centered on the people who the injustice, the oppression is being inflicted on. Mm -hmm. And one of the most ridiculous things about the Palestinian cause, but also about many other liberation movements, is the number of conversations that happen without the people who are suffering. So when you think about, you know, even if you want to consider what are considered some of the most progressive or left-wing or whatever you want to call it, outlets, essentially having conversations about Palestinians without Palestinians all the time, that is the norm. Only this dam breaks. And I think it's a combination of using the right tactics, uh, but also there's been a lot of hunger for that because I think people have recognized how, how, how much we're missing Palestinian voices in the conversation. Um, it's, it's been, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that this is something that we're even discussing. I mean, I think it's important to discuss it, but the fact that we have to is ridiculous. Uh, and the fact that we're only now saying, oh yeah, look at all of these Palestinian voices. 73 years later, I think is really telling about how important it is for Palestinian voices to be to be heard and, and to be the, the main ones that, that we hear. Yeah, brilliantly um, articulated. Definitely, I think we look back on history often from a developed perspective, from a colonizer's perspective, and in some ways, in some kind of twisted, bizarre, perverse form of fate, it's the people who's, who cause the problems are then trying to design solutions for it, as opposed to the populations that suffer um, in the meantime. Um, you mentioned how this is a decades-long struggle, and I think that's really timely because, you know, we're talking within the context of the last month or so, but there's so much that's been going on in the backdrop of it, um, from forced evictions um, and kind of the decades long practice of ethnic cleansing and making Palestinians suffer uh, for the cause of having a, a majority population um, within the state of Israel. Um, not everyone, or, or rather some people tend to use the excuse that, you know, it's a very complicated conflict, you know, no one wants to really pick a side. And I mentioned that because I recall on social media, someone had quoted, well, if you choose not to pick a side, then you've already chosen a side, really, in your silence and your and your absence. As Palestinians, at what point do you see ignorance becoming complicity? Like, is there really an excuse for not knowing enough about this conflict decades later? Perhaps we can turn to Salam first. Sure, yeah. I, do, I think it's inexcusable, in, in all honesty. I think if you strip everything away and you look at what's actually happening, people are being massacred, they're being butchered, they don't have access to water, they don't have electricity, they, ha they have no basic human rights. It's To look at that and say, sorry, it's complicated, I, I don't have a stance or I can't comment on it. Actually, you should really do some self-reflection and think about where your moral compass lies, because 
if you strip all of it back, it's inexcusable. There's there's no justification for it. And actually, the two side thing and oh, this person has this, and you have a right to defend yourself and all of that. You can argue that until you know the cows come home. But the reality is that people are unjustly losing their lives, and for you to say that's complicated, you know, like you said yourself, you've already picked a side. I think. I, I can't look at someone and think, you know, you have any sort of humanity in you if you don't see that and, and you are not moved and touched and, and horrified, actually, by the, the reality that people are facing in the 21st century. So I think ignorance and all of that, it's all complicity. And, and I don't want to see it if I see anyone choosing not to engage. And I think people, I've, I've seen a lot of people talking, I you know, don't force anyone to talk on the matter, let people be educated. And I'm like, you don't need, you know, every single piece of information to know that what's happening is wrong. It's very black and white. And if you choose not to acknowledge that, then um, I, I, I question your morality, I think. I think the it's complicated thing and the it's a conflict thing and uh, oh, I see both sides and all of that is often made in bad faith. And that's what we've got to recognise. It's people who are, for whatever reason, choosing not to describe things as they are. And that has been one of the most central parts of Israeli and Zionist propaganda the entire time. And that's what's been used in every single struggle. Oh, it's complicated. You can't have an opinion about it. You can't possibly understand it well enough. And there is a huge number of people who make that argument in bad faith. So I get very impatient uh, when it's made in that way. And, and I think it's normally quite easy to tell when it's being made in bad faith. We did touch on earlier the, the, the mainstream media narrative and, and the fact that the vast majority of people maybe do get the narrative from the mainstream media. And so as a result of that, I maybe find it a little bit harder to, to draw the line on a kind of grand scale or a, on a kind of population level. Because, this, you know, despite the general public's kind of low confidence, confidence in mainstream media, it, it still does shape the debate. It shapes how uh, politicians talk about it. It even shapes how uh, supposedly radical organisations talk about it. Um, even when you think about the most uh, progressive political parties or the most progressive parts of the most progressive parts of you know, of, of the political spectrum, it's still shaped by that mainstream. And and so sometimes there are times where I feel like I can't blame the person in front of me, but two or three conversations later, you know, it then becomes a little bit ridiculous. And then you'd see that it's kind of being made in bad faith if it's still, if it's still there. Because, you know, it's, it's not as though there was a single year in the last 73 years during which there wasn't ethnic cleansing, during which there wasn't dispossession, during which there weren't people being killed, children being imprisoned, all of these things which are not two sides, are not, you know, they're, they're not features of a conflict. And so I maybe have two or three conversations, patience for it, if I see that maybe someone doesn't make arguments in bad faith, but I completely agree that I think most of the time it is just parroting Israeli propaganda around the fact that it's complicated, essentially just to silence the movement. And that's why it's used. I mean, both of you have really touched on this idea of having a narrative that is put in place to kind of silence what's actually happening on the ground. And you mentioned Salam silencing the truth. And I think that's really important because we've seen statements being put out by certain people in prominent positions. And there's still kind of a lack of confidence to really jump in the deep end and say, this is what I support. And it's for this reason. And it's really difficult to understand why. Like you can see videos and you can see what's happening and you can see the suffering. And yet there is almost like someone's got you in a chokehold and you're unable to really come out and say, this is wrong. This is point blank wrong. I don't want to ask you why 
that might be in place, like why people feel they can't come out and have that opinion. But we touched um, earlier on, at least in the introduction, about this global solidarity movement. And I think having attended a British university, a Students for Justice in Palestine society, was almost always kind of on the fringe of, of the campus. It wasn't something that had a lot of traction in terms of you know, the ability to carry action, where it seems with this movement, there is potential for stronger change with these student societies and societies as a whole. When you see this global solidarity movement growing, not just on university campuses, but all of the protests that have been happening worldwide, sometimes on a weekly basis, what then do you see as the galvanizing factor amongst these people? Because as you mentioned, it's not a complicated history to understand. It's not too difficult either to say what's right and wrong. What do you think might be kind of holding people back from recognizing the Palestinian struggle within the mainstream media? like I think on an institutional level, it's that there are many, many, many complicit institutions. Governments are certainly complicit by arming Israel, never actually implementing any accountability mechanisms, despite going on about them over and over again, and despite implementing them in oppressive regimes that they're not complicit with. Uh, or that maybe they're likely complicit with, but there is deep complicity between Western governments and Israeli oppression, and deep connections between the struggles going on within Western countries for liberation and uh, the Palestinian struggle for, for liberation. And so they would recognize their hypocrisy if they stood with the Palestinian people, uh, as well as uh, they would expose their complicity, uh, because to disentangle themselves, and this is this goes for uh, for, for banks and universities and you know various industries, for them to dis disentangle themselves from Israeli oppression would be to essentially reveal how deeply compl complicit they are through investments, through partnerships in various ways, through subsidiaries, all of these different business links, as well as you know kind of other um, other forms of, of you know maybe kind of sharing knowledge and, and all of these different things that maybe universities uh, would have as well. So that would be uh, would be clear, and that's why you see individuals being much more willing to do that because they don't have that baggage. They see things as they are, and they've got no they've got no stake in this except the human stake, the fact that they that they identify with the struggle and find it unacceptable that people are are being oppressed in this way. So, so I think it's just that it resonates with individuals who aren't complicit, or you know, in, let's give credit to people who may be complicit or were complicit and then recognize that and then withdrew themselves and, and, and try to correct that wrong. I think that's essentially the, the distinction between those who, who speak out and, and do something about it and, and those who don't. Yeah, I would have to completely agree with that. And I also think on an individual level, I think, especially when you, you promote that voice of I support Palestine online, that like anything that you do online leaves a stain. Like it's very difficult to erase. And I think where like Leith is saying, you know, there's so many institutions and, and, and companies that are complicit with this and are supporters, you know, of Israel and the things that are happening there. Actually, you make a comment online that potentially impacts your career, you know, your job prospects, your ability to access specific universities or schools or things like that. And I think we are living in a society where sometimes we are reliant on those things to propel us and to give us the life that we supposedly want. So actually, you, some people choose not to say anything because actually I don't want that taken away from me. I don't want to have to live in the shadows and actually a consequence of me speaking out means I'm not going to have the life that I would like for myself. And I think younger people are less 
um, controlled by that. Actually, they are willing to make uh, changes for themselves. But actually, I think you see slightly in the older generation where people are have been sort of turning a blind eye to that are now choosing to say, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm willing to to make a stand or willing to say anything because this may compromise my life essentially. Um, but like you're saying, you know, small universities and and smaller independent people and you know smaller groups are saying, you know, I don't care about that. Actually, this is important, and if I'm not saying anything about it, who else is? Because everyone else is complicit in this. So actually, when you look at these big corporations. You know, we might all be small, tiny people, but we've all got voices and, and united together. We can definitely make that change. So agree everything with Leith is saying, but I think, um, yeah, before I, I, I get angry. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot to take away from both of your um, sections, actually. I mean, the level of complicity is as you mentioned, not just at an institutional level, but also kind of at a governmental level. And um, Salam, you mentioned earlier um, the colonial roots of this conflict. And it's very true. I think you've got countries like the UK, the US, Canada and Australia who really can't make as much of a big deal about this because their entire identity is colonial violence against an indigenous population. And by coming out um, and criticising it, you are almost saying, well, perhaps there's something wrong with myself and no one really wants to go down that rabbit hole. Um, and unfortunately, as is often the case, the people who are suffering continue to suffer whilst um, these states go through that kind of moral dilemma, which is which is not fair at all. Also, Salam, you mentioned kind of this a fear of speaking out and fear of, of solidarity with the Palestinians. And I think it's definitely true. I think over the last couple of years within the UK, the um, fear of being labelled an anti-Semite has meant that a lot of people self-censor, um, which comes at odds actually with a lot of the things we're seeing in government at the moment, which is promoting freedom of speech. And it really makes you question, well, are we free to speak about what you want me to talk about and not free to speak about certain other things? And we've seen recently really kind of frightful allegations of school children um, being censored for their support of the Palestinian movement and a really disturbing audio clip of a young student being berated by two teachers, one who didn't know much about it and the other who was kind of just shouting down at him on, on of her opinion. And it creates a culture of fear and it's at odds with this idea that we should make the world a better place and I think that is what this new generation is probably going to be struggling with is, you know, do I do what I can? Or do I do what I should in, in terms of gets me that job and gets me that promotion and, and keeps me sanitized, at least as far as my online social media presence is? Um, we're talking about social media. Obviously, that's the point of this podcast. Um, and we mentioned previously that it's been a big help. You know, it's galvanized a global community. It's allowed people to see what's happening on the ground. But really recently, kind of we've seen also disturbingly the censorship of stories. We've seen videos being hidden, the heads of digital platforms saying it was a glitch or, you know, something that doesn't really, really cut it. And also more recently, we've seen people saying, well, if I try to use the hashtag Free Palestine or Save Shape Jarrah in my Instagram video, it's flagged as something that's kind of violent content or something that's received a lot of complaints so we won't let you post it anyway. Given that social media is increasingly becoming the tool to get the message out, how do we approach this topic with social media giants that probably don't always agree with the fight for the small man? Like how do we navigate that as individuals who use social media and what's kind of the backup option to still be an activist but use social media? 
perhaps we can start with Blake? I think social media is absolutely vital and and we've seen that you know pan out recently because as we introduced at the beginning without social media we would be getting a very specific filtered narrative which is not that of the Palestinian on the ground and the most incredible thing and I hinted at this earlier is not just that the Palestinians on the ground were just telling what was going on but they were united in using a particular lexicon and a particular narrative which we Palestinians have really struggled to get out into the mainstream and into widespread use until this month. So transforming the conversation from conflict to settler colonialism, from you know two sides to apartheid, talking about the 73-year-long crime, talking about Palestinians being united, no matter where they're being oppressed, whether it's in the West Bank, whether it's in the Gaza Strip, whether it's Palestinian citizens of Israel, whether it's refugees, that all of them are oppressed by that same regime of settler colonialist apartheid. That had no traction until this month, and it gained the traction through tireless work of scholars over the years, but but it was catalyzed through the ability of Palestinians to share their stories, but at the same time using that lexicon. Uh, so they kind of ended up then feeding each other and and um, social media was vital for, for telling those stories. But it's not enough. So social media will not build a liberation movement by itself. It can get the message out there about various things. It might be able to uh, help us connect with each other. So I you know, speak to my family in Palestine on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I get news from my friends who who are, you know, at the at the confrontations with Israeli soldiers um, during the protests, and understand what people are saying on the ground. But if we then don't use that to build a, a movement, a real movement for liberation, then then that's when it becomes slacktivism. So as long as we are clear on why we're using it, so whether it's to connect with each other so that we can all build a movement together, or it's to build a particular narrative so that the general public becomes aware of what we're trying to say. It's a tool, but it's no more than that. And it's a tool that has its challenges, as you hinted, with regards to the censorship. So it's been an uphill struggle to even tell those stories. But just like with many other things uh, this month, I think the dam metaphor is very, very important. There was a dam that's breaking and Palestinians kept pushing. And uh, and, and eventually were able to overcome some of the, these challenges and obstacles that were being placed by um, social media giants. But that was because there was a very specific sets of uses for, the, for social media that I think Palestinians on the ground were aware of. And so they knew why they were using it and therefore understood what they needed to do to get the message out there and to overcome those, those obstacles. So we're not, you know, I, I think we, we do need to, to, to speak out and campaign for, for these social media giants to, you know, revolutionize their policies, because even if they say, oh, it's, you know, they've apologized many times, which is the first time they've done so, by the way, but they keep saying it was unintentional, but it clearly did so by design. So we need to have a conversation about it. We need to keep pushing on that front. But I also don't think that, you know, they're not our allies. They just provide a tool which we can use. Uh, and we, you know, we can push the tool to become more useful by campaigning for them to revolutionize their platforms and to give people a voice and not censor us and not favor the powerful and the oppressor. 
that's very important. But as long as we keep recognizing that that is only a means, it is not the ends. Yeah, I think those are such like vital points that you're making as well. Like the the whole notion that actually this is just a tool. It's it's here to help us spread the voices. But actually, like you said, it's not going to start a liberation movement. We we can connect people, but it's not you know the be all and end all. But I do think that as you know, I I don't know about the two of you, but as a millennial myself, like I've grown up with social media. I'm definitely engaged heavily with it, and I think you know, just to take that little bit of time and think how to beat the algorithm and and to find ways around sharing information that is not going to be censored. And I've I've personally done it myself, you know, with changing um, letters to, to icons or numbers, um, just to sort of make sure that that isn't filtered through sort of whatever Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Twitter's using, just to push that. I mean, Pete, you you don't need a degree to know that if I've changed the S to a dollar sign, that this is what I mean. Um, so I think those small little changes, which we are all conscious of being able to do, will help us continue to share the stories that need to be shared without the censorship. I mean, you can do so many variations of the word Israel that Instagram's not going to ever be able to keep up with you and, and filter that out. I think that for us, um, and like we said in the very beginning, Leith and I, that we use social media as a form of, of news. That's our news outlet. That's where we get our information from. I don't know where I'm going to then find another reliable source of information. Where is my alternative? There, there isn't one. I think what we have to do is acknowledge that actually by design, like Leith was saying, that these social media platforms, regardless what the, the movement is, are here to censor people because they don't want us to push the narrative of freedom for people, for anyone, whoever it is. But I think we just need to be smart in the way that we choose to engage with social media and the information that we push um, and rely on on those people who are social media experts to, to tell you, actually, this is how you bypass this. This is how you share more information. Um, and also, I think it's really integral that we filter out people who are not engaging with the content because I think when you look at Instagram by design actually lack of engagement shows that your post is not going to reach many people so filter those people out you don't see anyone watch get rid of them what are they there for do you know what I mean it's just not essential but also I think like you were saying in the very beginning that there are you know some very vocal people both on the uh, on the ground in Palestine but also in the UK as well you know sharing the stories and and really highlighting what's happening instead of waiting for that to come up on your feed search for it go and get that information and I think that's just a, a rubbish excuse from anyone to say oh because I've not been exposed to it I'm, I'm no longer engaging actually you're not actively engaging you're not actively trying to learn so it's really important that all of us choose to do that on social media and engage with it to get the information that we need from it as opposed to allowing it to feed the information to us brilliantly put the idea of active engagement is so crucial when it comes to social media i think when it wants to it's very passive it's you know we can't make the rules we can't change anything this is how we're designed you use us we're at your kind of mercy but really it has a lot of tentacles uh, some of which you can't really see in terms of what it's controlling um, and the idea of active engagement is really important especially for a generation that I'd say is pretty activist, right? Like we all have a lot of causes that we agree with and are willing to, to, to do something about, not just if that's at the bare minimum resharing a post, 
but to the bare maximum, I don't know, chaining yourself around a tree, whatever it is, there's some level of engagement that you can do. I'm curious to know kind of what apps you go to. For me, it's been Twitter. I think there's just been kind of a live barrage of tweets on what's happening on the ground, not just from people like Mohammed Al-Kurd and her sister, but also there are some journalists. So I think notably, I've just been watching Al Jazeera kind of nonstop to know what's been happening. And I think even Sky News has got um, a reporter that's been doing a pretty stellar job at reporting violence from Israeli occupation forces against Palestinians for little reason. So what kind of apps do you go to for your news? Is it Facebook? No. <laughs> I think face I haven't I have Facebook for the sake of staying connected with family and friends, but you sort of I I gave up on Facebook when I was maybe about 15 years old and you know you used to change your your name on there and you might put like um hyphen whoever or whatever and I tried to change my name to Salam Arab and then my surname and Facebook filtered it and said, sorry, this is against guidelines, blah, blah, blah. And just to see, I changed it to Salam Jew surname and it was absolutely fine. It went through like without any issue. So after that, I was like, yeah, Facebook's not for me personally. I think Twitter has been an amazing platform because I don't personally find any sort of filtering. It's who I follow and actually I'm exposed to. If I choose to follow a journalist, whatever they like and they engage with comes up on my feed. So I think that's been amazing for me personally to get the information that I need. But when I want to share a story or I want to inform others, I find that Instagram's really been instrumental in doing so. Um, people don't really want to read, but I find that infographics are very useful in just breaking down the story for people who maybe aren't as well informed and are seeking information and, and coming to me. And I'm very, I mean, I'm not taking responsibility for telling the stories or being the teacher, actually, you know, there's a wealth of information out there, but someone's come to me directly and needs bite-sized information. I found that Instagram has been an amazing platform for sharing that. Um, I've also new to TikTok. Um, I think the algorithm has been exceptional in um, vocalizing things that are very, very important. And I think it's very easy to go viral and have a viral moment on there. Um, so I found that quite good to get very snip, like short snippets of information, um, but very reliable bits of information as well. Um, but definitely not Facebook, no. <laughs> Yeah, no, no to Facebook from me. It's um, like Salam. There's uh, a few family message groups, which um, I'm on there for, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> but um, so I, yeah, I, I mainly use Twitter, to be honest. And that's uh, very curated where I want to get information from. And I'm, you know, cherry pick the, the sources that, that I trust and value the opinions of. So um, apart from the couple of names that you mentioned, uh, the Kurd family who have been doing an amazing job, uh, a few other kind of Palestinians on the ground, um, both kind of, from, well, from, from all areas of Palestine, as well as some analysts and journalists and scholars. I have Instagram, but I'm one of the people Salam doesn't like, who um, doesn't engage very much in it. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry, you can filter me out, Salam, that's completely fine. <laughs> Yeah, I, I value Twitter the most out of the outlets. And in terms of how I share things, uh, I think I use it to vent more than anything else. So I use Twitter in probably the, the most classical sense, which is like how I think it was when it was 100 and something characters. And I think that was kind of mainly what people did. And I am not someone who, who organizes 
kind of through social media and who kind of I, I mainly use social media to consume rather than to put out content you know I don't really kind of mind if, if people kind of like or don't like what, what I post it's kind of mainly a, a stream of consciousness more than anything else and then use much more kind of I think traditional channels to organize because I value the kind of the community side of, of organizing although any movement does need a social media officer it's just that it's never me <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I think you're both not alone. I mean, I, I never really used it, but I uninstalled it from my phone to focus on my exams. And then I just never got around to reinstalling it again. It was just like a time vacuum and barely posted on it. Um, and somewhat ironically, actually, for this podcast, um, I'm faced with the conundrum of trying to promote it on social media whilst hating social media. So <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoron that never really works out. I did want to mention, actually, Clubhouse. So I recently joined Clubhouse and I think it's been really amazing. I think it's a difficult concept to buy into because, you know, sometimes you're just listening to people read their CVs out or otherwise just have a constant monologue of their of their own feelings. But there have been a, a couple of rooms that uh, one was titled Meet Palestinians and Israelis um, and predominantly gave way for Palestinians to speak um, of, of what they're going through, not just on the ground, but also within the diaspora and having people kind of recount their experiences either in refugee camps or kind of the the tragedies that their relatives have gone through and if we think about kind of gaming the algorithm that you have to do on other platforms you don't have to do that within clubhouse because someone's already set up the room and the moderators are in charge of who talks but so long as you're not being rude um you're you're not kicked out or anything or silenced and it's been a really nice way to virtually be in a room and and listen to stories that you wouldn't otherwise find you you won't find them recorded or pasted somewhere else you have access to what people are going through um, and have gone through and it's a good way to hear about them thinking but we are not sponsored by clubhouse just yet evidently we do spend quite a bit of time on the platform so feel free to find us and join a room when you can this episode was amazing and we've decided to split it into two parts. Part two of this episode will be discussing reclaiming the narrative from mainstream media, so stay tuned. And also, don't forget that if you've enjoyed listening to our episodes, why don't you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast from? That way you won't miss a new episode when it gets released. So sit back, spread the word, and we'll see you next time on The Social Relapse. <laughs>